Hello, rhetorical listeners, and welcome in to another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. I hope you're doing okay. The weather's probably turned wherever you're at. Um, I'm here in the Midwest, and we've dipped down into the 30s. Um, that first, I wouldn't say it was a hard freeze, but that first freeze happened. The dogs were cold. I was cold. But we're trudging along, and we hope that you are too. How are your classes going? Uh, My tech comm students are doing usability testing this week, and oh man, did I win the classroom community lottery with this bunch. I'm telling you what. Uh, The other day, I'll tell you a quick... This is how I know that. Like The other day, a student was walking out of the classroom in a workshop to go to leave, and she just said bye everybody and in unison like over half the class close to three-fourths of the class was still there and they all said bye student's name we'll just say charles bye charles like it was amazing i was i looked up from i was working on like what is going on right now like that's when you know right there that the classroom community regardless should pull you through i think i don't know I don't know. That's how I feel about it right now. That and when I I say this to my dissertation advisor, director, sometimes I say, I feel like the students are teaching the class. I'm not teaching the class. I think that's another good sign that things are working well for you. So what are some of the things that you look for in your classes? What are some of the things that let you know, okay, things are going okay. But maybe more importantly, what are the things that let you say, oh, gosh, maybe I need to rework that or, oh, no. What just happened there? I want to give a quick shout out to a former guest of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Earlier this fall, just a few weeks ago, we talked to Dr. Jackie Wells, uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham. And then in the mail, I still get the print copy. I shouldn't, but what can you do? I got the new copy of College Composition and Communication. Uh, notice Jackie had an article in there with Lars Soderlund. Let's get the title here to make sure we get it right. A study of the practices and responsibilities of scholarly peer review and rhetoric and composition. Hot topic, Jackie, I think. But I looked through their article. I read most of it. And I thought they did a really great job of laying out the responsibilities as being shared responsibilities of the editor, of the writer of the reviewer laying that groundwork is going to help everyone as we get to that discussion as a field of what peer review is and i say discussion of the field or by the field because that's what jackie and lores are proposing they're proposing that we you know uh, focus on writing standards in a public forum for peer review and they posit perhaps c's as a place to do that i don't know we'll see if it gets done if it ever happens i'll be in c's i hope you will i'll be at c's i hope you will be too hey check this out though from jackie's article with lars i don't know why i keep throwing lars on the end there like he's not important or something it's just that jackie's a friend of the show so apologies there anyway they have this excellent 
excellent section on what makes constructive feedback and i think it was really revelatory to see how the, the statistics concerning how many people don't get feedback and then someone going through the comprehensive exams i can say that if i pass i'm excited but i still want feedback i want to know where my exam exceeded expectations and where i missed the mark if I fail the exam, I certainly want feedback. The same thing with, I think, a submission and the peer review process. Radical Ideas by Radical Thinkers, Jackie and Lars. Thank you so much for that contribution uh, to the conversation concerning peer review. What about the conversation for this episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, though? Oh, man. All I can say is that I hope one day I'm as smart as Lacey Hope. Lacey Hope is a graduate student at Washington State University focusing in rhetoric, composition, technical communication, and we had a conversation for the ages, really. I mean, my goodness. This, this woman ha has to have, like, some of the best ideas for the classroom. Like, I'm telling you right now, she's someone who we're going to point to later on and say hey look at Lacey Hope leading the field leading the discipline with her scholarship I cannot wait for you to hear our conversation so you know what let's just jump in right now here's my conversation with Lacey Hope Yep, there we go. Perfect. Okay. Perfect. And I've got subtitles on. So, Lacey, um, I, I have a question. Oh, oh go mind. ahead. There we go. Sorry, no, I lost go the audio ahead. for a oh. hot second, but we're back now. We're back. Okay. We'll just keep that in there, right? It's a meta moment for the podcast listeners. Oh, hold on. Losing audio again. Let me do a uh, – Skype will let me do a, an audio test. Okay. Uh, and it'll just take a split second. All right. Can you hear me now? I can, yes. Okay. If it breaks out again, just stop and let let me know. Um, okay. And we'll, we'll, we'll try to fix it on the fly. You got your bachelor's degree at, at Dixie State University? Yes, it is. St. George is a great community. It was really funny when I decided to go there. I was talking to my parents and they said, well, uh, because I'm originally from the Salt Lake area. And they had said, well, we'll help you with school if you go somewhere in state and you get in-state tuition. And I, my my parents always joke around and said, I pulled out the uh, a map of the state of Utah and said, this was the furthest from home, so that's where I'm going. But it was probably one of the greatest decisions I, I've ever made. St. George is a really cool and happening place. I think it, uh, if you've ever been to Zion National Park or are familiar sort of with that red rock scenery, that is just what you're greeted with as soon as you get into the city limits. It's great if you love outdoor, if you're an outdoor person, but there's also so much theater, so much culture. And so there's so, so many great things going on and a lot of very, I think, interesting cultural discussions and um, peoples that just engage with one another down there. So it's a really great community. And I, you know, 
as much as I love Pullman, I sure do miss St. George, especially during the winter, because I'll tell you what, I, I much appreciate having a 70 degree, you know, December weather as opposed to 20 degrees. <laughs> as someone from central Alabama now living in the Midwest in central Illinois, I feel you on that so much, Lacey. <laughs> We had experienced something called a polar vortex last year. It was Mm -hmm. ridiculous. (laughs) So uh, Dixie State, I've never heard of Dixie State. Uh, I've never been to Utah. That's probably part of it. But I did something similar. This Going far away from my parents, staying in state for my undergrad. So that's funny to hear that. After your bachelor's degree, though, you did make a pretty big move away from your parents in, 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 in Utah when you moved to Pullman, Washington to pursue your master's degree. Right. Okay, so you got your master's degree and you're working on that. And your thesis was titled Tweets for Civility, Utilizing Twitter as a Tool for Civil Discourse in the uh, FYC Classroom. And we're going to talk more about civility more in depth later, right? But... Your thesis committee was made uh, for your MA was uh, Dr. Kristen Arola and Dr. Mike Edwards and Dr. Patricia Erickson. And so I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about your experience in the MA program there at Washington State, your specific thesis and, and, and what that was about, and then how that kind of, I'm assuming that that's where you really started working with the concept of civility. So I would say, Without explicitly naming civility, my interest in it started during my undergrad. I'd mentioned my parents before, but they both at the time worked for the federal government. Um, my dad was, is, was a veteran and continued working through the military. My mom was an IRS employee. And uh, back you know, during the government shutdown, I believe it was 2014, uh, 2013, 2014, both of them were basically out of out of work. They were both deemed non-essential workers. And so there was that big issue, you know, of how, how are they going to make ends meet and having to address that as, you know, a reality. And I remember watching the news and just hearing all of the elected officials not talking to each other like refusing, you know, oh, we don't want to work with this party. We don't want to work with that party. I'm like, well, someone's got to give because there are people who who need to go back to work. There are real people who are impacted by this. And so I wanted to better understand why or how we could put ourselves in a position where we refuse to engage in discussion. You know, what made that possible, especially when the stakes are so high that you are basically deterring people from going to work, right, in this case. And so I really became interested in that during the last part of my bachelor's. And so when I entered the program at Washington State, I really was interested in working with those who had uh, expertise in political discourse, political economy, public discourse, things of that sort. And what's kind of interesting is that I have a very tech heavy, I have had a very tech heavy committee for my master's. 
And I remember when I told my some of my mentors in undergrad that I was attending Washington State, at the time they said, oh, that's great. You get to work with Kristen Erla. You get to work with these different scholars and do digital stuff. I'm like, oh, digital's not really like in my wheelhouse. Digital's like not what I want to do at all. And then um, I started taking Kristen's graduate seminar on digital technology and, and how we situate that in rhetoric and composition. And I started to realize that digital tools were really starting to serve as a way that we engage in these public discussions. Because even with that government shutdown, you know, there were conversations being had on Facebook and on Twitter and on Reddit, perhaps not to the degree that they are today, but they were still ongoing. And I realized that there was a new way that I could explore my initial idea of, okay, well, why would we be unwilling to you know, chat with someone or discuss, you know, very important topics. And I also had to confront the reality of we probably will never be able to change how our public officials interact with one another. And, you know, especially when they are out of the home state, you know, we don't unfortunately exercise as much control as we would like. And so at that point I said, okay, well, why not focus my research on the general person. And the general person now tends to use digital platforms in order to engage in these ideas and in these concepts. And so that's what really piqued my interest. And through Kristen's class, I had the opportunity to write uh, sort of this comparative rhetorical analysis on how different groups of individuals use Twitter during the uh, Ferguson protests. I think what really grounded my master's thesis in civility, specifically the FYC classroom, um, later that year or later that academic year, so February of 2015, I believe, I had the opportunity to attend the Far West um, Pop Culture Association, American Culture Association conference um, at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. One of the panels I attended introduced concept of personalizing algorithms as well as filter bubbles. And at that point, I, you know, the wheels began to turn like, oh, if we're not exposed to difference and different discourses in the ways that different experiences people cite when, you know, holding and maintaining certain views, then perhaps that's why we have such a difficult time. And that's why we're seeing the hostility that we are online. And then later that semester specifically, I uh, it was my first semester ever teaching, and my students were giving presentations on their final research papers. And I remember I had one student in particular who was presenting on gender-neutral restrooms on the WSU campus, and they and a peer just... They got it first into a discussion that at first was fairly civil and they were able to share ideas and kind of feed off each other. But then very quickly, I saw an increase in hostility, incivility. They were getting very frustrated with each other in front of the whole class. And when I went back and reflected on the conversation, I thought, wow, this really is, you know, what they were saying in class is how they would perhaps speak to one another on social media. And so at that point, I said, okay, well, students are already using social media uh, to some degree. So how can we take this, this tool, this platform that they use and have developed perhaps sort of these 
not so helpful approaches to engaging with others. How can we flip it on its head and use it for good? And so that's what really started the master's thesis and what led me to that point. It sounds like the work that you did in your master's thesis where you took civility Right. And, and and then explored more of the algorithmic side of that is what led you into your dissertation project, which is civility in the age of algorithms. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, that you have I, I want to ask you a question. I was looking at your CV and your dissertation committee is Dr. Julie Staggers as your chair and then Dr. Mike Edwards, Dr. Victor Villanueva and and Dr. Stephanie Vi, who's your external member. Mm-hmm. So what's unique is that you have an external member. Not all programs require that. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Washington State's program and your decision to, to, to have an external member or if it's required. And then how did you go the process of choosing that person? And I'll cut this out. I guess if it's Stephanie Vi, you kind of just <laughs> – <laughs> there's not a whole lot of choosing. But you're going you're gonna to get to that, I guess, in a minute. So, yeah, could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So here at Wazoo, we there is no requirement to have an external member. However, I saw some of my peers in uh, other cohorts seek out external members, and they just talked about how helpful it was to have sort of an outside perspective and to also bring in someone who addressed a or who was uh, an expert in a specific area that perhaps wasn't covered here in our faculty. And so when I was putting my committee together, I knew that there were certain areas that I would need to cover. I knew that I would need someone who had expertise in public rhetoric, someone who had expertise in in technology, specifically regarding machine learning. Um, I knew I needed someone who could help me out with all of the theory-heavy stuff, and I knew I needed someone who could do social media. And so um, the first three things I could easily cover here within our department. Uh, my chair, Dr. Julie Staggers, is fantastic when it comes to public discourse, public rhetoric. Mike Edwards has been such a great resource when it comes to machine learning programs and the ways in which we situate composition into those concepts. And Victor Villanueva does a wonderful job, has done a wonderful job helping me make sense of the different theories um, and really helping me select my methodology. You know, there was quite a time where I'm like, oh, do I want to use Marx? Do I want to use Latour? Do I want to use Habermas? Like, who's going to be, you know, the main go-to? And so he was really helpful in helping me navigate that. We didn't have anyone specifically that focused on social media, and I knew that that would be an important component of my dissertation because I see social media sites, while conversations online, of course, occur elsewhere, they most commonly occur on on sites like Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit. And I wanted someone who had a research agenda that was dedicated to that area of study. Throughout the master's especially, I really became a fan of Stephanie's work, specifically with the arguments that she had made regarding the incorporation and how we incorporate social media sites into the composition classroom. And I knew that the way she, the ways in which she explored and studied social media would complement my research well. So I took the opportunity when I attended Computers and Writing a few years back in Finley, Ohio 
to sit down with her, explain my research, um, talk to her about what my interests were. And at that point, I popped the question and asked if she would be interested in uh, serving as an external member of my committee. And I am so glad I did. It's been incredibly valuable having her, again, her insight and her knowledge and expertise specifically with social media, but there are enough overlaps in her research with other members of my committee that it creates this very thoughtful and intriguing dialogue about my dissertation research and methodology. So you've got your committee together and you're ready to embark on the dissertation. And uh, that the title again is Civility in the Age of Algorithms. I want to hear more about your methodology for this uh, project. And I think that our listeners would like to hear more about that as well. Because, um, But I also think it's important to note that you're working with algorithms. So we need to talk about that too. So why yes. don't we start? <laughs> so why don't we start with the first part and then move to algorithms? Sure. Regarding the methodology of my dissertation, this has been fun because this is the first time that I have had the opportunity to work with participants outside of my institution. Okay. So I've done more quantitative research before and and I've done more uh, participant involved studies prior to this, but everything, everyone who participated was pretty much you know, in-house. Um, either they were students in my classroom or colleagues that I, if I had questions, I could just go knock on the door. But what I wanted to do, especially having after having some really great discussions, particularly with Mike and Stephanie, you know, uh, they said, well, what happens? Because initially with my dissertation, I said, okay, well, I'm curious how the comments and the level of civility demonstrated or the ways in which we see civility demonstrated or not demonstrated. I'm curious how that varies from one platform to the other when we are looking at posts regarding the same thing. And so I am specifically curious about personalizing algorithms. So algorithms that tailor the content that you see and in a way remove user agency in terms of curating their own kind of feeds. And so initially, I was just going to use my own accounts to say, okay, well, if I log on to Reddit, if I log on to Twitter, if I log on to Facebook, and I look at a post regarding, um, you know, whatever happens to be the topic of the day, in what ways are the type of comments going to differ, the ways in which individuals respond to others in the thread, the uh, type of discourse practices that they uh, utilize, the type of media, do they uh, use additional media to supplement their responses? Are they engaging just with the post or are they responding to each other and creating a dialogue? And so that is where my dissertation started and what I initially proposed as my methodology. But after engaging with with members of my committee, particularly Mike and Stephanie, they said, well, if algorithms are different or uh, present different information to different people because they are personalizing algorithms, what would happen if we expanded the study to include other individuals? And I am particularly interested in the political uh, implications of this. So I wanted to recruit individuals on different platforms representing different notches in the American political ideological spectrum. 
And so with that, I recruited a total of nine participants, three for Reddit, three for Twitter, and three for Facebook. And I did so using every means possible from the listservs to uh, tweeting out about it to harassing people on my Facebook feed to going to various spots of Reddit and recruiting participants. And so that way I can make sure that I was accounting not only for different individuals who I may or may not know. But also what was great about this is that I'm getting individuals from various parts of the country. So I'm also, I'm not just getting the perspective of those in Washington or, you know, if I were to have people that I knew from, you know, back in Utah, I'm not just getting like a Washington or Utah perspective. Rather, I'm accounting for cultures that are seen in other parts of the United States. And so essentially what we have been doing to in order to ensure that we're all kind of looking at the same topic and the data is as similar and you know as consistent across the board as it could possibly be i'm assigning threads related to the 2020 democratic primary debates and so for example following the july debates i told all of the participants within a certain time frame go to this assigned comment thread and I assigned them again to ensure that even if it wasn't the exact same, you know, headline, for example, or the exact same article that was prompting the discussion, you know, there was a consistency there. So I think for the July thread, it focused uh, specifically on Biden. And so all of the posts related to uh, Joe Biden in some way, shape or form. And so I said, screenshot the first 50 comments you see and, and then send them to me. And so, and then we'll also be doing the same for tomorrow's, uh, for the September uh, Democratic debate as well. And so what I'm hoping to do with that is not only get um, a sense of how it can vary, how the presented content can vary from one individual to the next, but how it perhaps varies over time as well. And if there are any interesting bits that I pick up when studying that. So Once I finalize that data collection, I want to use Bruno Latour's actor network theory to understand exactly how algorithms are are functioning on these sites and how they can or cannot. I don't know. I'll let you know when I have reached my conclusions, uh, perhaps in November or December, but the impact they can or cannot have on the on a user civility on that on that particular platform. That sounds like a fascinating project, and Thank you're you. going to have to let us know in December what, what what you find. When, when you start talking about algorithms, and full disclaimer, not, a, not a, a, an expert on algorithms, but, but the first thing I started thinking about were two pieces that I'm familiar with. And the first one is Jessica Raymond's The Agency of Algorithms mm-hmm. uh, from Theorizing Digital Rhetoric. And and then you mentioned agency, right? Mm-hmm. And then so I wonder, not necessarily so much Raymond's piece, but perhaps, but what did your project reveal or hope to reveal about the about agency and the relationship or triangulation, I suppose, of user algorithm and agency? That's a good question. In fact, I actually think I had the opportunity to explore this during my preliminary exams last year. 
what I think is really fascinating is how algorithms can and I think do restrict user agency in the type of communities that they become a part of and the ways in which they hold each other accountable in these communities. So with Facebook, for example, um, you know, it's, it's more reliant on what the site kind of wants you to see or what the site thinks you want to see. And I don't think that prompts as great of accountability among community users, especially when they turn to more publicly accessible comment threads. So basically uh, going from, you know, or going back to the example of the election, you know, going from a, a private page that is dedicated to talking about how awesome Bernie Sanders is. Well, if you go then on to like MSNBC or CNN, where that community doesn't really exist, but there are also really no rules in which you engage with one another. How are you going to react when someone says, mm, I'm not big, I'm not a big fan of Bernie, you know, Warren, Harris, someone else all the way. But, and so I think algorithms were strict to a degree our ability to do that and control how those communities function. But what's interesting is that with sites like Reddit that aren't as algorithmically dependent, at least in comparison to sites like Facebook and Twitter, it really gives the users, I think, incentive to abide by the community rules and understanding that what they're seeing is the discussion as it's happening, as opposed to, you know, Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg saying, this is how we think you, we want, you know, this is how we think you want the discussion to look. And so, yeah, I definitely think it removes agency, but especially in how users can engage on those spaces. I mentioned that there were two texts that I was familiar with when it comes to <laughs> algorithms. And the other one is uh, Sophia Noble's uh, algorithms of oppression and mm -hmm. listeners can't see Lacey shaking her head. So I literally I want... have it sitting right in front of me, actually. <laughs> well, I guess then it's a pretty influential part of your project. Absolutely. Absolutely. Could you talk a little bit about uh, how you're incorporating Noble's work into your dissertation project? Sure. I think what I really want to focus on with Noble's work. So granted, she looks at Google, which is not right. a social social networking site, but a lot of the observations that she's making, I still they, they ring very true for what we're seeing on social networking sites, especially the ones that I'm studying. What I think is particularly fascinating is the ways in which um, companies like Google are using the sort of mass gathered, uh, search terms and, uh, in order to kind of create a picture of different social groups. And so when she, you know, talks about, you know, if you Google, you know, a black girl versus white girl, I think was an example that she used, you know, what are the right. two different type of search results that come up, especially if you were to Google image search it and talking about, okay, well, this is really just pulling off the fact that we have some, you know, we still rely on racial stereotypes when describing, you know, members of certain social groups. And so I am wanting to work in her understanding of that to say, okay, well, how does that work both on the individual level 
And how does that work on a broader level of all users? So for example, you know, if I go in and type um, everyone who likes or if I, you know, frequently post on Facebook, anyone who likes Rocky Road ice cream is lame. And those are my search results. It begs the question, okay, is this because I specifically typed it in? Or is it because there are far more individuals out there who think that anyone who eats that particular type of ice cream is uncool in some way. Um, And so that is something that's really informed how I approach my study because it's like, okay, is it, you know, more reliant on the individual or is it more what the users in general are kind of sharing and how they're searching specific ideas on that particular platform? It sounds like your your dissertation project, I know that I know that you're interested in democratic discourse, right, in the mm-hmm. classroom. And but what about like the impact of technology on, on how does that play into perhaps your pedagogy and 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 the concept of, of civility? So I would say that technology plays a huge role in my pedagogy. I I would say that as an instructor, I really try to rely heavily on theories from new media pedagogy and try to blend it as best as I can with community engaged pedagogy. But with that, I want my students to leave whatever class I happen to be teaching. And here at Washington State, I've had the opportunity to teach several different courses I want them to be critical users of technology. I want them, you know, so for example, with my basic writing students, I said, okay, well, write me a narrative about how you use technology to help you write. And I received really thoughtful pieces about how some students want to use Word because it catches their spelling mistakes and allows them to focus more on content development. Um, With my technical communication students, I want them to... Think about how things like algorithms are ultimately going to impact the circulation of their digital text. With my DTC, which is Digital Technology and Culture, um, another department we have here on campus that I teach in, you know, we look at, well, the whole class is dedicated to digital technology. So we uh, look at it in a number of different ways from design to data visualization, curation, and social media. So Regard, like I said, regardless, I want to make sure that students are critical technology users, that they not only understand the functionality of the tools that they're working with, but also the implications of that and understanding the cultural biases that went into making the platform or device or whatever it is they happen to be working with possible. And you mentioned um, community engaged pedagogy, and as, as a as a fellow technical communicator teaching his first technical communication class this semester, uh, I'm partnering with the y, local YWCA to have my technical communication students um, produce some documents, flyers, brochures, things like that for the YWCA. So I know that that's something that you're invested in, uh, that and service learning. So I was wondering if you might have a project or two that you'd like to talk about from your time at Wazoo. Oh, yes. Um, So I would say probably, gosh, a couple of years back is when I really started to embrace and prioritize service-based projects 
Overall, I, I believe that composition writing is is a public good, and it is absolutely necessary that we have strong writers, because to me that indicates that we have strong critical thinkers that can advocate for the changes that need to occur in society. And after a couple of semesters of teaching technical communication and doing sort of these hypothetical fixes um, and or, or projects based on, you know, hypothetical situations around the community, I said, well, what would happen if we actually had students work with uh, nonprofits in the area? So I started this uh, approach called Partnerships on the Palouse. And what students did in the class was they got into groups or they applied for different uh, nonprofits that they wanted to work with. And I had set all of this up beforehand. So they students could possibly work with, uh, we have two humane societies here in the Pullman area. Yep. So they, uh, they could either work with one of the humane societies we have, they could work with the women's center here on the WSU campus. We also have another women's center in the community alternatives to violence, the Palouse, and they, or they could also work with the Pullman education foundation. And so students would apply to work with these different organizations and based off of what they could contribute, why they wanted to work with a specific group, I placed them. So that kind of boosted up the stakes for doing really well on the application project that I assigned and like with the resume and cover letter. And then from there, they worked directly with a representative from that nonprofit. And over the course of the semester, they familiarized themselves with the material needs of the organization. And that was something I really wanted to stress. I'm like, okay, just don't even <laughs> work with money. I said, rather encourage people to donate the material items. And I think I stressed that because every nonprofit that I spoke with and that ended up being a part of this basically said, you know, yes, money's good, but having those materials in-house would be far better. So talking to, for example, people at the Humane Society, you know, saying if we could get people to bring in wet food for the cats because it's almost kitten season, or if we could have people bring in hand sanitizer, because that's something that's very consciously practiced up here is that anytime you want to, you know, engage with the animals, you have to use hand sanitizer when going from one kennel to the next. And so they said, if people could donate that, that would be great. And so students over the semester familiarized themselves with what their particular organization needed. It also challenged them to think about how their organization was perceived in the community and being aware of that when crafting their materials. And so they, working with these partners, they created new media projects, which took so many different forms. We had uh, the students working with the Pullman Education Foundation had the opportunity to develop a really great website that they could direct those interested in donating to for more information. Those working uh, actually with both women's centers did great promotional videos. Those working with the humane societies did great social media campaigns and engaging social media campaigns and put together style guides to basically say, hey, after this semester is over, here's why we did what we did. And if you find that this is successful and continues to be helpful, here's how we went about it. And so 
they not only got the opportunity to do that, but then we also, I also assigned them to say, okay, now create formal request letters that you're going to send out to big companies requesting material donations. So for those working with the Humane Society, they would write out to like BarkBox or to Petco. And they would write these formal professional letters requesting certain items be donated. Uh, those working with the Women's Center would write to companies who make feminine hygiene products or who make you know, children's toys because they, at one of the women's centers here, you know, they have a space for uh, women to bring their children. And so they would write out these letters. And then at the end, we had this open, uh, we had their presentations where they essentially said, here's what we did. Here's an overview of the work we've done this semester, but we made it open to the public and actually saw great attendance and participation, especially from the community partners and their stakeholders. Lacey, you have inspired me. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, well, I, I, I made my contacts in the community that I joined two years ago when I moved here at the YWCA, but you have inspired me to go ahead and make the contacts at the Humane Society. I've been thinking about it for two semesters. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to do it. Oh, do it. Do it. And, you know, it's great because on the course calendar, I would uh, include days that were specifically for site visits where I would tell students, don't come to class. I'll be in my office if you have questions, but take this as an opportunity to speak with your community partners face-to-face. And after I would do check-ins with each group, it would seem that those working with the Humane Society, there would always be sort of this extra little bit of glee when they were giving me the updates. It would be, oh yeah, you know, we talked to them about what we want to do with this project, and then we got to play with the dogs, or and then we saw this really adorable cat. And so, you know what, I would highly encourage working with the Humane Society. The two here we have in town were absolutely wonderful to work with. And like I said, I think the fact that the students got to interact and help out the animals really, I I think they became more invested in the project. I know that one thing going on in your life right now is that you are on the job market. I am. (laughs) How's it? uh, How is that going today? How's it going today? It's going well. Yeah. I, yes, I uh, just updated my whiteboard to include all of the applications I I would like to to work on and when their due dates are and it's just it's staring me in the face right now but I am equal parts excited and terrified yeah okay you have to elaborate on what you mean so I'm excited because I you're right out the gate I've been at this whole school thing since 1997. I have not stopped since I, you know, started kindergarten. So I'm looking forward to being done as a student and I'm really looking forward to the next step and being able to continue on with my research in sort of a different type of setting and sort of the not grad student type setting any longer and and being able to have those resources that are available to faculty members. So I'm really excited for that. And I'll be honest, there have been quite a few applications that I have been nerding out just writing. Oh, yeah? I, I know. 
yeah, I know that might sound weird to say, yeah, I wrote this cover letter and I geeked out when talking, you know, when talking about this concept or the courses I could offer this institution or who I would, you know, like to collaborate with as a colleague if I got hired on. And so I'm very excited about that. But of course, you know, this again, it's also the next step. So with that comes change, comes not knowing, unfortunately, also comes rejection, which is where the terrifying element comes in. But I'd like to say I'm more of a silver lining type person. I'm always looking for the positive in any experience. And so I'm really trying to ride this sort of, high of optimism for as long as I possibly can. And after talking with, you know, some friends who have been on the job market recently and some of my committee members, if I can ride this until, you know, November or December, I will be a happy camper. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, what is, as someone who is, you know, a a year away, I guess, from the job market. uh, Wow. I guess that's the first time I've thought about it like that. Uh, Yeah. It kind of cre- creeps up on on you, I guess. You know that more than I do. But um, how have you found the? How have you spent found like the the network or the community of people on the job market? How has your experience been so far? I went into the job market, I or I guess these past few years, especially as friends of mine and uh, other former graduate students that I've known talk about the job market. You know, we always hear that oh, the market's oversaturated. We're producing far more PhDs. And so I really was anticipating this whole process to be just cutthroat. I was anticipating competition in its most extreme form, but that is not at all what I have seen. Rather, I have had the opportunity to collaborate with others who have recently been on the job market and those who are currently on the job market. I, you know, academic Twitter uh, hashtag team rhetoric, hashtag team rhetoric, hashtag team rhetoric, hashtag women in tech com, women in TC. You know, those have been great platforms. There are a couple of Facebook groups that I am a part of where people are sharing job ads, even though, you know, again, we all might be applying for these positions, but we're all looking at it in a way to help each other out as opposed to, not helping at all, or God forbid, sabotaging. And I think what has been really cool about this process for me is that whenever I tell people that I'm on the job market, particularly those who have gone through this process or have sat on a hiring committee before, often the first thing that comes out of their mouth is, well, if you need help, please email me and let me know. I have taken several people up on that offer basically saying, hi there, here's my CV. Here's a cover letter. Here's this, here's that. Here's what I'm looking for feedback on. What are your thoughts? And every single person who I've taken up on that offer has returned feed, just thoughtful, meaningful feedback in a quick way. And in a way that, you know, is going to help me be more stand out and to be more competitive when my materials are being reviewed. So, I have been so grateful for this collaborative community that 
has really stemmed from this experience. And so just drawing off of networks that I personally have established from conferences, Mm -hmm. from (laughs) going back to academic Twitter, uh, has been incredibly helpful. And I would highly recommend anyone on the job market, if someone says, if you want help on your materials, let me know, take them up on it. It, you know, being able especially to get feedback from someone who is not on your committee and perhaps outside of your institution is a fresh pair of eyes that gives you a new way to think about things and look at things. That is excellent advice from Lacey Hope. That should be the oh, new name of the you. podcast, I think. That was <laughs> such good advice. <laughs> Lacey, what else do you want to talk about? Oh, goodness. So I think... I really wanted to discuss, I think, the importance of incorporating civility into our classrooms. Okay. uh, Especially where we are now, I guess, historically. So we're shaping up to go into another presidential election. We all remember how big of a hot mess the last one was. Um, Uh, Remember, we all live every day. The hot mess that was November 2016. Uh, In November 2016, the dumpster fire that it is has still followed us. I think it is so incredibly important not just to address civility in the classroom, but to give students an approach for going about civility. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when I ask students to define that term, well, I'll say this, I teach online uh, through my alma mater, Dixie State, and I teach an online research writing-based course. And I frame it in a way to say, okay, you're going, you're entering into ongoing academic and public conversations. You are going to encounter people who do not see eye to eye with you. You are going to meet people who do not agree with your ideas or who might push back against what you're suggesting. And so I'm like, civility, it's important to emphasize, you know, civility isn't this necessarily just being nice and putting on a smile and a happy face, but furthering a valuable discussion in a way that sustains ongoing conversation regarding a a topic of interest. And so I always ask my English 2010, uh, that's the title of the course. I always ask those students at the beginning of the semester, I say, define civility in your own words and talk about how we see it in uh, just general American culture. And students I've always been blown away by the definitions that they create, and several of them will start off by saying, okay, I'm really not exactly sure what the technical definition of this is. I I can't, you know, give you a Webster's definition, but to me, civility means, and oftentimes they use words like listening, understanding, collaborating, learning, teaching, thing, and, and similar key words, really emphasizing that civility is a collaborative process that happens with every individual in the discussion, but also that it's a conscious choice that we need to make. And of course, just to sort of follow up to that, when I say, tell me how we see it in American culture, nearly every single one of them says, we don't. (laughs) And so I think that illustrates, though, the importance of introducing it in the classroom. I specifically like to use Chantal Mouffe's conception of agonism, paired with Sharon Crowley's understandings of civility, Zizi Papakrisi's definition of civility, and Krista Ratcliffe's 
uh, kind of rhetorical listening as more concrete steps for realizing agonism and, and engaging with difference, especially in productive ways. One of the things I find fascinating about civility and the way that you talk about it is it sounds like civility is more of a method and not a reaction to a situation or occurrence. Would that is that a way that you might is that is that a way I could see what the way that you're seeing civility? Yeah, you know, I think it could, I, I think we could describe it both ways. So I think civility perhaps is a goal that we can, a more of a theoretical and tangible goal we right. can strive for. And I think that there are more concrete steps that we can take or that we can encourage students to take. One thing, um, and I'm actually very excited because where we're at in the semester, we've actually started talking about this in my English 2010 course. And and I, I warned all my students and I said, please be aware, I this is my favorite unit and I'm going to geek out. So just bear with me in the lectures as that happens. But, you know, I say that this is the goal that we should strive for because it is how we can continue to have meaningful discussions. But, you know, I start off with saying, Let's think about how we approach difference and how we see those holding different views. And, you know, I don't think I need to go into too much detail, but, you know, we we see how our culture is becoming, it seems, more and more polarized each day. And so one important concept that I really try to stress to students is saying, okay, well, what happens if you see someone who's presenting a different point of view as an adversary as opposed to an enemy. So someone who does hold a different point of view, but does so with the same intent as you to make the world a better place and to benefit all of humanity. So if we reposition someone in that light, how does that change the ways in which we engage with them, the ways in which we consider and respond to their ideas? And then we go over, you know, and I think this is where more of the concrete step steps element kind of comes in is, you know, we talk about rhetorical listening. You know, yeah. I try to stress to say civility isn't just through talking. Civility also is exercised through listening. Right. And to enter a discussion, not, and when we do respond, not responding to argue or to prove wrong, but, you know, listening with the intent to understand, responding with the intent to better understand why someone has arrived at whatever conclusion they've arrived at. And so, yes, I think civility can be sort of this larger goal, but it's important to, especially when incorporating it into any kind of composition classroom, is to give students more concrete ways of, of reaching that goal. Lacey, anything else you want to mention before I let you off here? Oh gosh, nothing comes to mind. I just, I appreciate you speaking with me today, giving me the opportunity to talk about my research and get to have a great conversation. Hey, it was great to talk to you too. And so I appreciate you being on with me as well. You feel good about it? Oh, I do. Very much oh, so. This is right. the first time I've ever done anything like a podcast and, or like any kind of formal interview in a while. So this is a good learning experience, a good learning opportunity. And I think actually when I told uh, one of my committee members that I was doing this, he's like, oh, this will be good prep for the job market. And so I think it has been. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. 
All right. Yeah. Well, hey, maybe oh. I get a job because of this. You know, maybe <sighs> maybe this uh, practice will will help me nail that Skype interview, right? I cannot wait to tweet out where you're going to be teaching next year. <laughs> oh, you and me both. You and me both. <laughs> Lazy, have a good afternoon. Thank you. You too. Thanks again. Okay, rhetorical listeners. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Lacey. You can see now what I mean after listening when I say, dang, she's so smart. I'll never be as smart as her. Maybe no one will. I don't know. Alas, we must try. And so if you would like to join the podcast as a guest, perhaps you're going on the job market and you heard Lacey's podcast episode and you're like, hey, I should do that. I should hop on and talk to Charles. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series is for you. It's a unique series of podcast episodes. It's an inclusive space specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the field and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. We're booking for the spring right now. We got a couple of Emerging Scholar series already lined up. It's going to be excellent, but we've got a few more spots. So if you want to join or you know someone that would be great, reach out to us. You can find us on Twitter at the Big Red. You can see us, find us on Facebook. You can reach out to us via Gmail at the Big Rhetorical, the Big Rhetorical at gmail.com. We need you can contact us via our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. Remember, I'm a graduate student, so I can't pay for that premium domain name. So, buy some merchandise. We tweeted it out last week. We'll tweet it out again. We're trying to sell a little big rhetorical podcast merchandise so we can hit the road and go to more conferences and do more live recordings. Now, I told you, you know we're going to be at C's in Milwaukee. Looks like we're going to be down in North Carolina for computers and writing next summer, but... We want to go other places too. So we reached out to the people at Watson Conference about coming on the podcast to promote their CFP. If somebody knows one of the leadership team people down there at Watson, tell them to get back in touch with me and tell them to buy some merch. All right. I think that's everything. I've got a comp exam that ends in two days. All right, I am currently embodying the intersection of linguistics and digital rhetorical theory. All right, I'm doing that. So I'm going to keep doing that for two more days. Shout out to my producer for helping me out with some editing this week. You notice we're coming in hot on a Tuesday. We had a couple technical issues. Hopefully that won't be the case again. All right. All right, hang in there. Hey, be kind to one another and always be.